Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. And I'm ABC's Deputy Political Director Mary Alice Parks. And Mary Alice sitting in for John Carl. And what a week at the White House because, Lordy, there are tapes. And we have heard now the first tape of Michael Cohen talking with uh, Donald Trump. Maybe the only tape that's out there, particularly with their voices. Uh, and it is a stunner. It is a shocker. We're going to get to it in a moment. Uh, we're going to have a lot of topics to cover, including uh, the trade war, the Russia fallout, and a special guest today, Congressman Beto O'Rourke of Texas, who's running against Ted Cruz out there. Mary Alice, the big story is this tape and what it means. And there's a lot of focus on, is are they talking about cash or a check or anything? Bottom line is, this is the president and his lawyer uh, the soon-to-be president, candidate Trump, and his lawyer talking openly amongst each other uh, about organizing payouts, hush money. To a playmate that says she had an affair with the president or with the candidate then. In some ways, a tale as old as time, right? Rick, <laughs> a politician wrapped up in an alleged affair and really wrapped up and tripped up in a potential cover-up. Whether or not you care or don't care, in some ways, this is a 2018 version of a story we've seen many times where something that personal becomes huge national headlines uh, because it's always really sketchy when campaigns start trying to cover up uh, something like that. So let's get to the tape. And look, we'll say at the outset, it is a little hard to understand. Um, we have... We've tried to listen to it a couple different ways. The, uh, the the Trump legal team hears it one way. Michael Cohen's lawyer hears it another way. But here, here it is as obtained by ABC News. I need to open up a company for the transfer of all of that info regarding our friend David, you know, so that I'm going to do that right away. I've actually come up and, spoken, me, and I've spoken to Alan Weisselberg about how to set the whole thing up uh, with so what are we gonna funding, that, uh, yes, um, and it's all the yeah, stuff, all the stuff, because you know you never know where that company, no, you never know what he's no going to be. Correct. So I'm I'm all over that, and I spoke to Alan about it when it comes time for the financing, which will be listen, what financing? We'll have to pay you. So no, 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 no. I got no, no, no. So uh, a lot of focus on whether they're talking about cash or check. And to my mind, that's irrelevant. <laughs> I mean, so the, the, we should play it out. The president's team is saying, Rudy Giuliani is saying, this shows the president is playing it by the book. He seems surprised by it. This is the first time he learned about it. Uh, we know now that his team was not honest uh, at all about his lack of understanding or knowledge of this, this recording made uh, in September, uh, so before the camp, before the election. Uh, but but leaving that aside, a lot to, to, to go through in this that I think is extremely significant, Mary Alice, uh, starting with the fact that this conversation happened in the first place in the, in the context right. of a meeting with President Trump. His lawyer comes in. They talk about poll numbers. They talk about what kind of events they might uh, participate in or not participate in, what kind of campaign surrogates, and then talk turns to this. There's sort of two big buckets of questions, political questions. Uh, do voters care that this sort of behavior was going on? Some might not care at all. Some might see this as uh, uh, what they assume happens, the underbelly, dark, dark kind of sketchy underbellies of maybe what they assume is in every presidential campaign, paying hush money to, to <laughs> playmates uh, who, who have alleged affairs uh, with the candidate. But others might care a whole lot politically. They might think this looks um, weird. This is not with their, in line with their values. Um, this is shady. It's shady 
practice. It's not what they want representing them in the White House. But then there's a whole other bucket of questions that are legal questions. Could there have been issues with campaign finance laws? Could there have been issues of moving money around in ways that are just illegal. Uh, Down the road, did someone associated with the Trump campaign lie or was tempted to lie in front of a grand jury about whether they knew about any of this? Uh, The president, like you said, has denied for so long, uh, even knowing Karen McDougal, even knowing about any arrangements, uh, knowing that there were arrangements, that there were payouts. Clearly, he knew. Clearly, he was read in by his lawyer uh, long ago about some of these arrangements. So whether or not one of them, the president himself or any of um, his associates could be tripped up down the road in a lie in front of uh, uh, in a legal setting would be a whole separate issue. And a couple of other points on this. First of all, uh, they don't actually mention Karen McDougal's name in this conversation. Mm. We know from the context, we presume it's Karen McDougal, but when Michael Cohen says all the stuff, it could be Karen McDougal plus other stories that we don't even know about, that AMI, the, the parent company of the National Enquirer, that's the reference to David Pecker there, the, who's the head of that company. Uh, th- th- it could have been bigger than that. It could have been more than that. We don't know. We also presume... And it's just such a crazy practice. Yes. They, were, they knew that this practice was taking place, and they were a party to it, right. to a company, a media company paying people who had stories that could be damaging to Donald Trump, paying them for their silence. And we do know that the catch-and-kill, so-called catch-and-kill technique was used by AMI, by, by American media. We don't know, uh, we presume, because we've been told this, that there was no payment made to them, that it wasn't then transferred to this other organization. We actually don't know for sure whether that's the case. It might have been, as Michael Cohen said, that they set up a shell company to buy this and other stories. That's out there. Uh, the the recording is also relatively brief. It, it cuts off mm-hmm. uh, after the portion that we just played. We don't know what happen next. We don't know if there's further tape evidence of that. Uh, We don't know if Michael Cohen uh, is is putting out just this snippet to send some kind of a message to to President Trump and his legal team. Clearly, he's playing hardball. He started a few weeks ago when he talked to George Stephanopoulos about uh, his his willingness to to cooperate on uh, with with federal investigators on this. He has signaled that he is ready to flip on uh, already in the process of flipping on President Trump. Trump is flipping back at him on Mm -hmm. on Twitter, talking talking about this as outrageous behavior. The fact is, Michael Cohen knows quite a bit. And this may just be the beginning of what he could potentially say about President Trump. And those are the questions going forward. Is there even some plea deal to be had? So right now he hasn't been charged with anything. What could he be charged with? What else could he maybe give up? Uh, those are the sort of questions people are going to be asking. What else could he give up on the president, if anything at all? That's right. And, and what, how this plays into a legal strategy. And the president sees this as a growing threat, I think very rightfully. Uh, this is separate from the Mueller probe. This has nothing to do with what Bob Mueller, so far as we know, is, is investigating. And those negotiations around a potential interview continue, even as this does. It is a wild set of revelations, though, in the big picture, as you say, Mary Alice, the the, the, the caught-on-tape evidence of the president and his personal attorney talking about a hush payment to a Playboy Playmate or some other individuals uh, in just a couple of months before the election is is absolutely an astounding development. Whether or not voters say in the, the high dudgeon of the time say that they care in a big way, that's a big deal when you're talking about the president of the United States. <laughs> absolutely. And, and politicians president. have been brought down for far less. I think that's a great point. Meanwhile, the president is navigating uh, a bunch of controversies of his own making, uh, per usual. Uh, the uh, two to hit on uh, primarily were only 10 days or so removed from the Helsinki summit, and we're still learning with Secretary Pompeo on the Hill on Wednesday, still learning what actually happened there. A lot of questions last week that I think are still relevant. Meanwhile, talk of a trade war. The president is uh, meeting uh, 
with the president of the European Commission uh, here as we talk on Wednesday. Uh, and the the sounds of a trade war coming have never been louder. Uh, and and uh, the president, the White House, puts out this idea of a reimbursement fund of sorts to, to make farmers whole. And, and conservatives are apoplectic. They, this is, they hate everything about this. But then again, it doesn't seem like they're going to stand in the way of what the president's doing. This money directly to farmers uh, who might be hurt by a trade war, uh, who is basically admitting, the White House admitting, that there are farmers hurt terribly in the short term by a trade war, by these tariffs. So that's interesting in and of itself. For a long time, the president um, has repeated this claim that farmers would be fine, and yet uh, they're not fine. They need some money, some bailout. But you're right that this is just the polar opposite of what the Republican Party has stood for for the last 10 years, maybe longer. They have been the party of free trade, and they've definitely been the party against government bailouts, uh, government money uh, subsidizing an industry that's hurt. Uh, the idea that we would use taxpayer money to to give very a very small percentage of Americans um, sort of check and help and reimbursement is something that is pretty hard to imagine Republicans being on board with. That's why we saw so much backlash even on Capitol Hill in the last few days. Nonetheless, the president going forward, it is worth noting the anxiety we hear from the big farm states. I mean, I've talked to the head of a dairy farmer association that said he was worried about suicide being up among farm um, among wow. farmers. Uh, we've talked to the largest association of soybean farmers who was just adamant on the phone and in his press releases that tariffs would be just catastrophic for the soybean industry. Uh, the commodities future for soybeans plummeted in the last few weeks. Even the USDA predicted there'd be a big surplus for soybean farmers this year, which obviously is not what you want to hear for a farmer. That means that the agency is guessing you won't sell all of your stock. Uh, the Iowa Corn, Corn Growers Association put out a statement yesterday saying, basically, yeah, the money could help, uh, but this is not the fix we need. We want new markets, not fewer markets. So really, the Republican president at odds with these traditionally Republican states with large farming communities that are really worried about these tariffs. And you talk to Republicans in, about their fears for what could go wrong between now and November. Uh, the economy, a big selling point. They are worried about tariffs. Forget Russia, forget Mueller, Michael Cohen, yes. any of that. They are worried about the impact the tariffs could have on their constituents, on perceptions around the economy, on the actual results of the economy. Uh, and I thought the president had a uh, one of those kind of rare breakthrough truth-telling moments uh, in his own sort of way at his uh, pretty extraordinary speech at the Veteran of Foreign Wars Convention uh, earlier in the week in uh, in Kansas City. Uh, he attacked the press and um, did, did kind of the normal uh, dance that you've come to expect, a very political speech at, at, at supposedly a nonpartisan Environment encouraged uh, uh, veterans to to uh, to boo the press at one point, uh, but here, here's what he had to say about press coverage generally. I think this is an important moment. Just stick with us. Don't believe the crap you see from these people. The fake news. <laughs> to me, that speaks to the the larger uh, facade that is created by this White House, that they're creating a whole separate reality. The president is asking his supporters to join him for that ride and not believe anything you're seeing out there. Uh, it, it takes even the fake news chance to another level when you're operating in a wholly separate reality that you ask your supporters to buy hook, line, and sinker. And it's problematic. It's, it's troubling. It's all those things. And it is what the president is doing. Asking people to believe him and him alone, right? That 
Remember that speech in the campaign when he said, I alone can fix yeah. it. That is the, the through line here. Uh, trust only me. Don't even trust other Republicans on Capitol Hill. Don't trust your own law enforcement. Don't trust the media. Trust me alone. That is unprecedented. <laughs> we use that word a lot, but it's true. It's also politically risky for this president, because if things don't get better, if soybean farmers suffer under tariffs, uh, the sole blame then could only go back to this White House. If the idea is that he is the only one responsible and they just need to trust him, then he'll sort of live or die by that mantra. And speaking of evidence that you can't refute, there's um, a big deadline coming up this week in terms of the family reunification issue that dominated the headlines a few weeks ago. And that was a story that broke through. It's easy for us to forget now, but it was only a couple of weeks ago that this was a genuine crisis on the border that sparked bipartisan outrage, humanitarian uh, concerns about the children being separated. And we're going to talk in a moment to Congressman Beto O'Rourke, who uh, represents uh, 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 the the El Paso area. So a lot of these border crossings are very real to him and his constituents. He's also a candidate for Senate. But but Mary Alice almost lost in the in the last few weeks is the fact that there are still hundreds, if not more, children still separated from their from their parents. It is clear that there are some children for whom reunification is not going to even be a realistic option because they've lost track of the parents uh, because of administrative problems or because the parents have, have disappeared back to their home countries. Uh, this is, Or been deported. Or been deported themselves. Actively yeah. by the government. And, and that they can't track countries. other members of the family. I mean, this is, right. this, it is now increasingly clear that this uh, Trump administration policy, and it was a policy of family separation at the border in these, in these areas of illegal crossings, uh, did not have any kind of a backup plan. They didn't have the the structure in place to deal with what happens on the other end once at when you're done with the separation. And we're told that lots of folks at HHS have been working very, very hard to try to work on this, but there's a limit to what even they can do with a scant paper trail and a lot of bureaucratic infighting and messes. Just clear that there were no records kept, no appropriate records kept. And the stories that we're hearing from these detention centers and some of these immigration courts, uh, mothers and fathers pleading to first, before anything else, be reunited with their children, uh, even if it means just giving up their asylum case, even if it means being deported, just heart-wrenching stories. And while it's out of the public eye in some way, not, not blanketing the TV screens, clearly a real... Uh, issue still playing out, a reality for hundreds of families uh, that they are living every single day. This story didn't go away. It did not go away. And we're going to talk in a a few minutes after the break with Congressman Beto O'Rourke, a a, a Democrat from Texas, uh, who's intimately familiar with this about uh, about this issue, as well as his Senate campaign. Uh, Stick with us. We'll be right back on Powerhouse Politics. Brought to you by Indeed, used by over three million businesses for hiring where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I am here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and start here. 
Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics, and we're pleased to be joined on the program now by Congressman Beto O'Rourke, a Democrat from the El Paso area from West Texas, who is also the Democratic nominee for Senate in the great state of Texas. Congressman, welcome. Thanks for having me on. So, Congressman, I, I want to start with uh, a deadline coming up this week for uh, under under the, under the auspice of a court order for reunification of uh, of those families separated at the border. I know this is an issue you've been involved in actively. A lot of these family separations are happening in and around your district. A lot of them are happening along the Texas-Mexico border. What's your take on where things stand vis-a-vis what was promised by the Trump administration? Uh, are we where we need to be? Are we on a path that, that complies both with the court order and also the compassionate side of actually having kids back with their parents? This is one of the most inhumane, cruel things I've ever seen in this country do And though it was the decision of the president, it is something that every one of us as Americans um, is now a part of. I, I was just in El Paso Saturday at Annunciation House, one of the Catholic charities, one of four centers in the country that can receive newly reunited parents after the, the mom or dad is re- released from ICE custody and the child is released from Health and Human Services ORR custody. And while it was wonderful to see these families reunited again, uh, I've got to tell you, there there was a vacant expression on the faces of these kids. When I talked to some of the counselors who were there volunteering their time uh, outside, they told me that these kids are having a very hard time bonding with their parents. And, and to your question, I also went to the ICE processing center where parents are still jailed, awaiting the opportunity to reunite with their kids. And it is clear to me that the administration is not going to make its deadline. These parents didn't know where their kids were, when or if they were ever going to see them again. Um, This country was in no way prepared for the industrial scale of family separation, um, has been unable to effectively track all of these kids with their parents and, and will not unfortunately be able to make the deadline. As you probably know, hundreds of parents have already been deported back to their countries of origin. When I went to the tent camp in Tornillo that has been stood up, to house some of these kids and had the chance to talk to them and ask them if they knew where their parents were. Those who did uh, very often told me that their parents were already back in Guatemala or Honduras. Um, So there's a lot more for us to do and and much more urgency has to come in in reuniting these families than we're seeing so far. What are the next steps from your perspective? What what should Congress be doing? What kind of pressure can you apply? You've got the courts, and obviously violating a court order is a big deal. But what, what other steps from the outside do you think need to happen to make sure that these kids are, are reunited? Thank God for the institutions that we have in this country, for, for the courts um, who have uh, ordered this reunification to take place and who have the uh, ability to compel the administration um, to act on this or, or to face very serious consequences if they don't for the press, not the enemy of the people, but the ones who are ensuring that we understand uh, what's happening. Now it's time for the institution of Congress uh, to stand up and, and do its job. Where, wherever we need to clarify our asylum laws, and I already think they're pretty clear, let's do that so, so that it, it is understood that if you are leaving one of the deadliest countries on the planet and your government cannot take care of you, and you claim asylum in between our ports of entry that you not be prosecuted like a common criminal and your child taken from you, but that you be treated like a human being in accordance with our law and with international law. If Congress needs to appropriate additional funds 
to HHS and CVP and DOJ, the three principal departments involved in this to ensure that we reunite those families more expeditiously, then so be it. Let's do that. Um, everywhere I go, if I'm talking to HHS, DOJ or CVP, I'm asking, what more can I do for you? Uh, what more resources do you need? But what's clear to me is they just were not prepared to do this um, in the first place. And then big picture, long term, uh, we need to rewrite our, our immigration laws to, to reflect our, our values, our, our interests and our opportunity, um, not just to help people who need it. Um, but to make sure that we fully incorporate them into this country so that they can contribute to our shared success. There's a big opportunity amidst all of this. Uh, Congressman, some of your Democratic colleagues are saying just abolish ICE altogether. A bridge too far for you? I just don't understand it. It's not clear to me what that would accomplish. Um, uh, Of everything that I just described, uh, ICE has very little to do with it. It is Customs and Border Protection and the Border Patrol agents specifically who have been apprehending those families and separating mother from daughter, father from son. It is HHS and the Office of Refugee Resettlement specifically that can't connect child with family once that child is in their custody. In addition, además, you've got hundreds, literally hundreds of migrants dying every single year along the 2,000-mile U.S.-Mexico border as we build more physical barriers, more impediments, push those migrants further out into the most desolate stretches of this country where they are dying by the score. So uh, abolishing ICE does nothing to resolve any of those issues. It is the practices. It is um, the way in which we are treating our fellow human beings um, that needs to be changed. And, and that won't come with a slogan or a bumper sticker um, or the uh, abolition of, of one department. It, it will come through um, thoughtful policy that brings people from both parties together to address some of these outstanding issues. And, and it cannot be done on the basis of fear or anxiety or paranoia, calling people animals or an infestation or describing immigrants as rapists and criminals. It has to be done from a position of strength and confidence and a reminder of who we are as as a country. I, I think you, Congress is capable of that, and, and I want to be part of that discussion. But are you talking to your colleagues about that then? Are you worried that that extreme messaging could backfire for the party politically? I don't know uh, on the on the politics of, of this or really anything right now. I'm, I'm just so focused on Texas and, and listening to what people are sharing with me there. But I am talking to my colleagues about the, the policies and, and the solutions to the problems that we have in front of us. I'm joining my colleagues and actually visiting um, some of the, the places that we just discussed. I, I went to the Torneo tent encampment um, that ORR operates with colleagues from both sides of the aisle who could see for themselves what these kids are, are going through. And I'm hopeful that those experiences and our shared concern for what's happening um, results in, in policy that we can be proud of. Um, but I'll tell you, um, it, it is very hard for some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle for whatever reason, to stand up to this president and to call out this behavior and meet it with meaningful legislative solutions. Um, But it it doesn't absolve me from the effort of um, trying to get this done. And and so I'm going to continue to try. You mentioned calling out the president, and, and we were struck by the headline last week in the in the wake of the meeting with uh, with Vladimir Putin that uh, you came out and said you would support impeachment if the the vote came to the House floor. Uh, I, I wonder, first of all, if that 
if if that means in your in your mind he should be removed from office, the the role you might play as a senator, and also what if you fear that this puts you out of step with your constituents? This is Texas is a is a pretty red state. Eight hundred thousand more people voted for Donald Trump than Hillary Clinton. That's a nine point margin. Do you think that the people of Texas want Donald Trump removed from office just a year and a half after they voted for him? Yeah, I mean the, the honest answer is I don't know. I haven't poll tested. Um, a single thing that, that I've said. Um, and um, my, my responsibility is to the people that I represent in El Paso, to this country that I serve in the Congress. And, and that is um, that requires from me doing my best in every circumstance, regardless of um, the, the, the consequences politically. So I, I think the best path forward, considering that we are in a Republican majority institution, and before you get to a vote on impeachment, um, the facts are going to have to be so compelling, so damning that one of my Republican colleagues can go before their constituents and explain how they voted to impeach the president of their own party. Um, the best path to take going forward is to ensure the independence and the integrity of the Bob Mueller investigation. Um, it is to ensure that there's a real consequence for what we know that Russia has done and what they are planning to do again in 2018 and 2020, because our intelligence community has told us that we, we have to safeguard the sanctity of the ballot box and our elections and acknowledge that there is nothing given in 242 years in this continuing for another 243rd or another 244th. Um, th- this is a, a, a real experiment, as old as it is, that, that we can govern ourselves, and it is under attack in a way that it never has been before. There have to be consequences, there has to be accountability, and there has to be justice. But that's the path that I think we need to take to get there. Does that mean you wouldn't be ready to convict necessarily, that impeachment is a different threshold than conviction in your mind? Correct. Um, impeachment is an indication that there is something there. It, I, I would liken it to an, an indictment. Um, a, a conviction is... Uh, I believe, a, a totally different bar. And, and that is something that members of the Senate um, would have to consider after having all of the facts at the conclusion of this investigation laid out before them. As, as I think you implied in the way that you asked the question, I have never called for impeachment. I've never uh, volunteered that opinion at a town hall or in an interview or in an email um, to our list. But I have answered the question honestly when it has uh, been been brought to me. But uh, I don't think that it is possible right now. I don't think that we are there um, right now. And I think there are several steps that have to be taken, including the completion of this uh, investigation by Bob Mueller. A lot of those questions are centered around the possibility that Democrats could take the House, could take majority in the House, and, and would then every member of Congress, at least every member in the House, uh, be faced with that very question? Would it, that be something they pursue? You know, I was struck this morning by an interview that your Democratic colleague from Massachusetts, Congressman Seth Moulton, was was giving. Um, he also had done a trip to the border, and he said that on that issue, on immigration, nothing would be done unless there was new leadership in both parties. Do you agree, kind of big picture, is new leadership needed for the Democratic Party? I'm a big believer in, in term limits. I think you, you do your best and then you get out of the way and allow others to succeed you. If you have any faith in those who you work with and those who follow, um, then, then I think that's the only way to lead. Um, and, and I'm subscribed to term limits. I am 
leaving the House after no more than, than three terms. I've said if elected to the Senate, I would serve no more than two. I think we should have term limits in our leadership in the Democratic caucus. We should have term limits in our committee chairs and, and ranking members. It's, it's, um, it's a display of faith that um, there are others who can do just as good, if not a better job than you've been able to do and bring their own unique experiences and expertise and way of seeing the world to bear on the problems and opportunities before us. So, yes, I'd, I'd like to see new leadership. So you have an opportunity to, to have new leadership at the beginning of the year. There's a new vote for Senate um, majority leader. If you're elected to the Senate, I think it's a good chance you would be voting for majority leader. Does Chuck Schumer have your vote? No, uh, but but it's it's not something that I've given a lot of thought to, and I would have to, um, you know, listen to those who are vying for that position, um, and then make the best informed decision. But I've not spoken to him or really anyone about it. In fact, this is the first time I've been asked the question. So um, focused on um, serving right now, focused on winning this election on the sixth of. November. And then if if we win and have the opportunity to serve Texas would turn my attention to that. If you had the opportunity to serve Texas as a senator, you could also hypothetically be voting on a Supreme Court nomination if that wasn't done ahead of time, ahead of the midterms. I think Republicans would like to get it done really soon. There could but, be more. <laughs> but uh, maybe down the road. But but uh, working through the the nomination that's um, that's in front of senators right now, would you vote if you were in the Senate right now? Would you vote to support Brett Kavanaugh? I would not. Um, I come from a state that is 49th in the country in voter turnout, and that's not by accident. That is 100 percent by design and on purpose. The lower courts four times last year found that people have been gerrymandered out of their congressional districts solely based on their race or their ethnicity. Some people not intended uh, to vote or their votes not intended to count for as much or their voices not intended to be heard. And it's had a very predictable result. I want a Supreme Court justice who believes in voting rights. His decision uh, in regards to the South Carolina voter ID law um, gives me great concern about his support for voter rights and access for everyone to the ballot box. I have concerns as well when it comes to a woman's right to choose and make her own decisions about her own body and his willingness to uphold 45 years of established law after Roe versus Wade. Um, his um, lack of support for net neutrality, um, his support for um, decisions like Citizens United, which essentially says corporations are the same as people and can spend unlimited amounts of money affecting or purchasing the outcomes of our election. Um, I, I want a Supreme Court justice who will rule in the interests of, of everyone, not just some, not just corporations. And, for those reasons, uh, I would oppose his nomination. What did you make of the fact that, that some of your Democratic friends on, uh, in, in the Senate came out against this nomination even before it was named? Did they jump the gun on that? I mean, if you, what's the standard you would use in terms of reviewing a nomination if you're elected to the Senate? I think you should make an informed decision in, in every case. You, sh you should um, learn as much as you can about um, a nominee. Um, and and then make an informed decision in the best interests of of this country. And I don't know enough about what members of the Senate did in in this case, but that's just how I would approach it. 
You know, in March in your state, uh, in the Senate primaries there, Republicans brought out 500,000 more people than Democrats. There's the assumption that there's just more Republicans in Texas. What would you put your odds at winning right now? Maybe more than an assumption, but... (laughs) (laughs) He was talking about low turnout. Yeah. Um, What would you put your odds at winning right now? You're you're absolutely right. I I don't know. I I feel good about things. Um, And, you know, there's some ways we could measure it. There was a poll released within the last few weeks that had us down five points. Um, There have been other polls that show us closer, that show us further away. We're somewhere around there, I feel. Um, As as you probably know, without taking a dime from any PACs at all, um, we raised $10.4 million from small dollar contributions over the last three months. Ted Cruz raised a little more than $4 million. Most of our money came from Texas. Maybe half of his did. We had 215,000 unique contributions. When I go to places um, like Wichita Falls or Amarillo or Lubbock or Nacogdoches, um, thought to be Republican strongholds, um, we're getting really good turnout. A lot of people, hundreds, sometimes thousands of people are coming out to our town halls. Uh, and they're Democrats, but they're also Republicans. I remember leaving a town hall in Paris, Texas, a very Republican community, and someone said to, to the fact that you just cited, they said, listen, I voted in the Republican primary because that's where I choose my county commissioner, my justice of the peace. Um, but I'll be voting for you in November. In, in other words, in, in predominantly Republican communities, it might make sense to vote in the Republican primary, even if you plan to vote for someone else in the general uh, election in, in November. There was much the same set of circumstances 30 years ago, just in the reverse. You had far greater Democratic primary turnout, and yet Republicans began to win statewide office after statewide office. Um, so there, there's perhaps a chance that something similar is playing out. And I just think given what's at stake and what's on the line for this country right now and for Texas, people are putting their country before party. And the small differences that used to divide us are not getting in the way of doing something really great for the country that we care so much about. I, I see that and feel that uh, on the trail. So I feel really good about things. And uh, quite quite the travels across Texas. You've had a lot of, lot of mileage uh, ahead of you as well. Congressman Beto O'Rourke, Democrat of Texas and the Senate nominee uh, on the Democratic side this year. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Grateful. Thank you, Congressman. And we should point out, Thank Mary you. Alice, that uh, we invited Senator Ted Cruz to join the, the, the podcast this, this week. His, his office wasn't able to make that work schedule-wise. We'll work to get him on at, at a future date. Uh, certainly an interesting candidate. Uh, y- I think you heard in that interview uh, some of the areas where he's challenging what it means to be a Democrat running in Texas. Uh, certainly he's a left-of-center candidate, but not down the line so. And I think it's interesting that he won't commit to, to supporting Chuck Schumer. Uh, and also that uh, that abolish ICE, he thinks, is a slogan that uh, goes a little too far. There's always been a question about whether Democrat uh, Democrats would do better in Texas over time because the, the demographics were just shifting or whether you would need an all-star candidate to break through, uh, to bring over Republicans and bring out more Democrats. So people are going to start asking as they, we get closer to November, is he that kind of all-star candidate? Or if he's close and his poll numbers are close, is Texas as a state just moving? Um, are, is the population different, the politics different in general? I, I'm not sure which the answer is yet. No, and that's that's what November determines. But uh, nationally, he's caught on. I mean, you've seen this. He is a 
rock star for fundraising purposes. He's a big draw now among national Democratic donors. Uh, and it's and it's not, I don't leave the impression that he's, you know, hanging out in Silicon Valley or New York City all the time. He really is campaigning around Texas, and it's that message that's penetrating. And there, there's lots of liberals in Texas. There's lots of Democrats in Texas. There's lots of suburban voters and female voters who have disgusted by Donald Trump. This is a state that Ted Cruz did extremely well on in the primary, in part because of that, even among Republicans. Uh, the question really is just how red Texas is and whether he can take advantage of some of the demographic trends that you referenced that I think a lot of people think 10 years, 20 years from now, you can see Texas start to move. If you can get a little bit ahead of that, in part because of Ted Cruz and who he is, and in part because of Donald Trump and who he is. I mean, Ted Cruz is just so polarizing, even in Texas. <laughs> you go around and there's places where people, neighbor to neighbor, either love him or hate him. And sometimes it is not on party lines. Ted Cruz is a unique character with obviously a national footprint, national profile as well. But it's interesting conversation. And really, uh, you know, we went in depth there talking a lot about the immigration, a lot about the issues with ICE and the detention facilities and the reunification of families. And you can just hear his passion, his concern, his frustration. Uh, that's his, those are his hometown, his hometowns, his, his constituents, his residents. And you can only imagine what it would be like to be in some of those places dealing with some of those issues on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it's not a hypothetical if you're living there on the border. And I think he gets those issues. All right. That does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. Thank you, Mary Alice, for, for joining this week. Thanks to our all-star team, Trevor Hastings, Dave Ryan, back with us for a one-time-only engagement. Angie Yak and Avery Miller will be back next time with Powerhouse Politics. <laughs>